Hello, listeners. Just want to let you know that we're throwing it back this month to an episode that we originally published in October of 2021. We talked with Chris Kelly, Nell Hurley, and Marin Nelson about their experiences creating and supporting recovery-friendly workplaces. We'll be back at the top of the new year with a brand new episode. listeners, and welcome to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field discussing substance use disorders, resources to assist individuals with an SUD and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. In this episode, we talk with Chris Kelly, Nell Hurley, and Marin Nelson about their experiences creating and supporting recovery-friendly workplaces. Employers play a critical role in fighting the disease of addiction, and recovery is good for business. Employers are becoming more proactive in recognizing the economic and cultural benefits of being better informed about substance use and ways to support talent who are seeking help or are in recovery. Through recovery-friendly workplaces, we can fight the stigma associated with the disease of addiction and encourage employees to get help sooner by providing resources that support their own unique recovery pathway. Without further ado, let's get talking. So before we get started, started, do you all want to go around and introduce yourselves for our listeners? I know our listeners do know Nell, but for those who don't, Chris and Marin, do you want to go a little bit about yourself and why recovery is important to you? Sure. I'll start. Hi, everyone. Uh, Marin Nelson. I've been sober since May 8th, 2005, so 16 years. And it is the foundation for my life. I mean, that's why recovery matters to me. It is literally why I have everything that I have, connection with myself, with my family, with friends, with work, community is how I'd sum it up. Uh, And excited to share about the work that I'm doing in the workplace and facilitating and creating community for people in sobriety, people who are sober curious, sober allies, in efforts to destigmatize talking about addiction and recovery in the workplace um, so that people feel like they can bring their full selves to work and have a safe space that sees them and supports them. Um, so yeah, excited to share that with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Marin. Chris. Uh, hi, I'm Chris Kelly. I'm a woman in long-term recovery and I'm a project manager at the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence, overseeing the recovery community uh, organization capacity building team. And similar to Marin, <laughs> recovery is the foundation for my life. I am a good mother and I own a home and I own a car and I have a great job that values what I contribute. I'm able to support my family, my parents, my siblings, and I wouldn't have the life that I have if I didn't have recovery. And so I do this work to ensure others have access to quality of life that everyone should have access to. Nice. Thanks, Chris. Nell, do you want to share too? Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm Nell Hurley, and I am also a person in in recovery. Uh, I work with Chris Kelly and Shannon Roberts at the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence Uh, And my focus area is on helping to build capacity within recovery community organizations. I've worked in the field of addiction recovery for about 12 years, and I started this work uh, at a recovery community organization in Minnesota. And my passion really is around helping to build and strengthen recovery communities and to bring visibility to recovery so that people can see it and find it and, um, and, and, you know, just to widen the doorway and and the access to recovery. So um, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Shannon. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thank you all for being here. Uh, Where I wanted to start, Marin, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear your story about starting and maintaining Sober Force. Sure. So I work at a large company called Salesforce. CRM global company. There's about 65,000 of us who work for Salesforce, which is crazy. We just keep growing every year, bigger and bigger. Um, So I've been with Salesforce for four and a half years. And last fall connected with another sober 
sales leader. I'm in sales leadership uh, on LinkedIn. Actually, he was basically coming out of the sobriety closet with a post about being sober. He was celebrating 15 years at the time, and he had never disclosed his sobriety to anyone in um, the workspace environment. Uh, and so he made a big post because he has a huge following and put it out there. 15 things he'd learned in 15 years of sobriety. And I actually had never worked with him. In fact, the three other co-founders of Sober Force, we had never met. Well, I had never met any of them before. We all worked in different parts of the organization. As you can imagine, 65,000 people and now pretty much fully virtual, although some are returning to office. You know, you, you know who you work with. So we connected and it was, you know, really approaching the height of the pandemic. Um, although who knows what the height of the pandemic is as we continue to live in it. Uh, but this is pre-vaccine. This is fall of 2020 and had a really lovely chat and basically said, you know, shared how we were all noticing people relapsing, people drinking more, you know, drinking in what appeared to be flipping into addiction. And the data now from CDC supports all of these anecdotal observations that it really is a crisis within this pandemic. Um, and we said, how can we extend our hand out to others at Salesforce who are all home um, in a highly stressed environment to create community in the workplace for people who are sober or sober curious or sober allies, um, facilitate a conversation that's within the, the walls of work, the virtual walls of work. So we did that. We stood it up. Um, we had guidance from our Office of Equality. So we had a framework to follow, which really helps. And um, we have other employee resource groups. Um, we have 12 primary uh, groups within the Office of Equality. And we're a subgroup of one of those established groups. And it was pretty easy. I mean, we, we granted, I work for a company that sells this technology and these platforms for communication and collaboration. So I have that at my fingertips to use, which helps dramatically. But there are quite a few Salesforce customers out there that could use you know, their Salesforce platform in the same way. Um, we've since transitioned it to Slack, but it basically it's a publicly available community to anyone at Salesforce. We state what our vision is and how we're going to measure our success. We call it a V2 mom. And um, it's pretty remarkable. Within you know two months, we got up to 300 members who were wow. like actually joined members of this group. And because we're public, anyone can see us. And that was really intentional. We want to make sure that there's a way to both join our phone calls. We have monthly phone calls anonymously, as well as watch what's happening on what's now on our Slack channel. We acquired Slack. So we've transitioned our community to Slack. Um, but we wanted it to be available so that people who are curious or afraid of the stigma or afraid of being labeled could still follow along. And quite a few of those people have been joined our group and said, I've been watching from the sidelines and now I'm here. So it's been, it's been amazing. There's been people who have been sober a super long time and have never disclosed it at work, who feel safe disclosing it and have created this, you know, be become part of the sober community. There are people who are newly sober in the pandemic who are reaching out for help. And we are open to all different types of recovery. So it's not just around drug addiction and alcoholism. It's also for people who are in recovery from fill-in-the-blank addiction, um, as well as open to people who don't drink for other reasons like health or religious or support of a loved one, right? And so we are very intentional about being all-encompassing because, again, the, the primary objective is let's destigmatize it and let's make sure that we are creating safe, inclusive environments holistically for, for people to be sober and mm -hmm. be here. So that was a very long uh, <laughs> explanation of what is sober force, um, but it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. And we've had really tremendous support from Salesforce, from the Office of Equality, but also from our benefits team, our HR team, our employee assistance program teams. They're all in the boat with us, which I think is really critical because we also want to ensure that we're surfacing those incredible benefits that Salesforce offers their employees in a way that is consumable and available when needed. And so that's been also a great partnership is to continue to iterate on, you know, how else can we better surface these awesome benefits to make sure people are taking advantage of them? Yeah, that's huge. It doesn't, it seems like one of those things that unless everyone's on board, it doesn't really work, right? Like you have to have the support and 
I think that's a tenet of the recovery community too, right? It works best when everyone's supportive of the collective goal. Yes. And I would also say to not let the, what is that? Enemy of good is perfection. Is that the expression? I'd also oh, yeah. say not everyone was in the boat on day one. Not that they weren't, but we just, you got to right. start somewhere, right? So mm-hmm. I'd also say, if this is of interest to start something that doesn't work, don't wait until you feel like you have the perfect format or the perfect alliances or the perfect, you know, you also just got to go. And that's what we did. We were like, we, got, we can't wait. Like the holidays were coming. We all know anyone who's in recovery knows holidays are generally rough period, high, high rates of relapse during the holidays. And so we're like, we got to hit go on this. And we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we had a rough framework yeah. of how to do it, but we had, no, we just like posted our stories in the public channel and we're like, let's see if anyone like this resonates. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and it's not, and we haven't yet arrived at a perfect framework to distribute. So we have a lot, lot of companies reaching out saying, hey, we're interested in doing the same and, and not the company headquarters, like individuals, because a company is made up of individuals individuals who are sober reaching out saying, I want to create this in my workspace. How do I do it? We don't yet have something to distribute in a formal way. It's literally just conversations. And I, I am super excited to see these other um, companies, you know, some fortune 500 companies that reach out, although quite frankly, I'm excited for any company who does it, you know, companies at scale who reach, who serve a lot of people to stand this up so we can learn from them too. Cause there are going to be things that they do that we haven't thought of that are, you know, I'm hoping to create a community of like-minded individuals in the workplace environment who can share all these stories together. Yeah. And Marin, this is Nell speaking. I just am struck by the power of storytelling, you know, for people to be able to come out and say, I'm a person in recovery, or I'm a family member of someone who, you know, is experiencing substance use challenges or addiction or whatever we call it. I mean, I think that there's this this myth out there that people who are experiencing addiction, substance use disorder, are living under bridges and drinking, you know, straight up whiskey out of brown paper bags. And the reality is, is that most people who are experiencing substance use challenges are employed. And a lot of them are functioning and, uh, you know, in in lots of ways, they have families and jobs and they work at, you know, great companies like Salesforce and to be able to bring some visibility to the fact that you are not alone. You know, we live in a very um, stressful, un- uncertain world. Um, so let's support each other. That is just amazing. And, you know, getting the word out there that great companies like Salesforce are doing this and supporting this, I think will give, I don't know what the word is, but it, it will allow other companies to maybe follow suit. And Agreed. it gives permission to say, Hey, this other yeah. very large company is doing this. It's working. People are joining, you know, yeah, maybe we yeah. think about doing this because like you said, I think I saw the stat recently said 75% of people with a substance use disorder are employed. Yep. Yep. So exactly. So it's like, uh, no, we are, I, we look like this. This is what mm-hmm. alcoholics look like. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Granted, I, you know, when I got sober and I was employed and I was not on a plan to be fired, like I, you know, production went way up when I stopped drinking. Yep. My efficiencies went way up. I was a far better employee, but you know, emotionally I was hanging on by my fingernails, right. no one knew that at work. Mm-hmm. You know, so and I think that's true for a lot of us. And I think it's really I think why this is so such a critical conversation right now is that we're in this virtual space. So it's pretty yeah. hard to tell if someone's got alcohol in their breath or isn't all there if they've got their camera off or even their camera on. Right. Like these ways in which I know for me, I managed my addiction or tried to manage it. I failed, but I tried to manage it through the work hours. So like I knew when I was at work, I wasn't drinking. Well, if you strip that away and everyone's now virtual, like that to me is like, for me, what makes sense of why there's so much more drinking? Cause like those boundaries have now been removed. So a hundred percent, there are a lot of people who have joined our group who have said, you know, in one-to-one conversations, like it, it mattered for me to see that, you know, this is what addiction, this is what an addict can look like. Because to your point, I thought it was just the people in the gutter drinking out of a brown paper bag, which for what it's worth is a yet for me. I mean, that's like where my addiction would take me if I didn't stop drinking. But there's a pretty powerful story of people sharing their 
getting sober while at Salesforce through the awesome mm. benefits, going to treatment, coming back, being supported, reintegrating to the workplace. That story has been really powerful to demonstrate too and to share with our community because there's quite a few of those individuals who've worked at Salesforce for a long time and got sober while employed at Salesforce. That's and have had really tremendous careers, you know? So, Marin, I am wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of the drinking culture that happens just out in the world. And the, what's making me think about this is I was, um, I ran the Twin Cities 10 mile on Sunday. Yeah, you did. Congrats. Yeah, it was really <laughs> Nice fun. work. But they were offering free beer in the beer garden at the, at the finish line. And oh, I was hearing people talk about, you know, like we're running for the beer and we're, you know, signs of like free beer at the finish line. So people were drinking beer at, nine o'clock in the morning, that was their reward for, and I thought, well, you know, I'm sure there's Gatorade at the finish line (laughs) as well, but like, how can we transform this and turn this around so that it is as inclusive for people who don't Uh, just live in such a drinking culture still? Isn't that so whack? And we're super careful to say, like, we're not the anti-drinking crew, because that's my favorite. (laughs) We're not. I mean, I'm married to someone who can safely drink and like, Good on everyone who can safely drink. We live, I would say, in a drinking heavy world. I don't think it. So so, sometimes people ask me like, oh, you're in sales. That must mean that like there's a lot more drinking. I'm like, there was just as much drinking in the nonprofit space where I started. When I got sober, I worked in nonprofit. Like, let's be real. Heavy drinking addiction is everywhere. It does not discriminate, does not care what space you occupy, right? But your question of how can we create a more inclusive space is a really critical conversation. And that is part of the vision for Sober Force is how do we create inclusive spaces? Meaning when we have a customer event, for example, let's ensure that we don't assume everyone drinks and send everyone a bottle of wine for a virtual wine tasting. Let's actually ask the question ahead, would you like to receive a bottle of wine or would you like to receive a Bite Squad gift card? or a box of chocolates, or a thing of coffee, or whatever it is, right? Like, let's make sure there are options and that people are opting in. Uh, Because I know for me, like, it definitely, it definitely is a signal that someone doesn't actually know me when you get like a bottle of wine shipped to your house. And you're like, yeah, no, this, and so I just give it away, or I throw it in the trash. And how many people are being put into that? So for me, at this amount of sobriety, no, you know, kind of no big deal. It's annoying, but like, I can get rid of it. However, for someone who's newly sober, and I've had mm-hmm. people come to me in this situation, that can be a really dangerous position to be put in. Something that was meant to be a gift, a reward, can actually put someone's life in jeopardy. So it's bringing that just, I'd say, pause and awareness to say, are we creating, a, one, are we creating an inclusive event? Um, are we giving options? Are people opting in? And are we offering alternatives? If we can, if we can socialize that and have that become the norm, just like you think about filling out a menu for an event, you go to a gala, you say, "I'm vegetarian or I'm vegan or I have this, I have this allergy." Like, I would love to get to a place where we have that for alcohol too, and we show up at an event. It's not just like your options water, like <laughs> let's have fun mocktails or whatever, right? Like. Not to sound, not to sound uh, high maintenance, but I do appreciate when I go to a restaurant and they have a really fun mocktail menu. Like that makes me come back because I feel seen that you, you as a restaurant establishment acknowledge that there are people who do not drink, but still want to have a fun mocktail, right? Like it, it's like such small little changes that actually have huge impact. Oh yeah. It doesn't count as inclusivity to offer a hamburger or a hot dog to a vegetarian. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you can have the bun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think it, it, and I think, you know, this is where representation matters mm-hmm. because the harm that gets created with exclusive events is not intentional. I don't think people intend to create harm or intend to leave other people out. It, this is where it matters to share our stories because if you become, if there are more and more faces that are people can reference and go, oh, I know that person doesn't drink. I know that person doesn't drink. I know that person doesn't drink. And then they're hosting an event. Maybe there is a pause to say, hey, you know what? Can we turn this into a cooking class instead of another wine tasting? Or can we do a cookie making party where we invite people's families to come and join? Like, 
because they're at home and they're calling in from home. Like, I just think it gives it gives that pause when there is that representation and people now have it on their radar. So I think it's just not on people's radar. I think everyone assumes that everyone drinks. Mm-hmm. You don't really think about it till you know someone. Yeah. When I appreciate what you said earlier too, Marin, about just normalizing sobriety, normalizing recovery, that we don't, when we create a space like what you did with Sober Force, um, people who previously might not have openly identified as being sober all of a sudden can say that. And it is, it's normalizing that there's a lot of us yeah. and it, it it's not all tragic um, right. that we're, that we're free to speak about this. I know the, the women on this call, um, we are very open about our recovery and there's no shame in saying I'm in recovery because we know that's why we're alive and we're able to do these jobs. And so it's also helping that employer understand because if they don't have it in their lives, if they themselves haven't had challenges and don't have family members, they might not know that this is okay for us to talk about. Right. Um, we can't demand it. We don't want to ever demand it of people or put people in a situation where they have to disclose information that they're not comfortable disclosing. But on the flip side, we do want to have spaces where um, not drinking is normalized. Thank you. That's exactly right. There are. It's interesting. There are quite a few uh, leaders who feel safe talking to me one-to-one about their own recovery, but don't want to participate in a visible way of sober force, but are supporting behind the scenes. And I fully respect that. It's like, this is everyone's journey of who feels safe disclosing and who feels safe being visible with it, right? And also... I know there's, there's gotta, I shouldn't say that. I don't know everyone's why. Um, I get the fear of being associated just with that becoming, you know, we like to put people in boxes. And so, you know, being aware of your brand, I guess, and what's my brand. And if I, if I out this about myself, does this become my brand? And to some extent, I'm probably doing that given I'm a co-founder and president of Sober Force, but I'm actually really proud of that brand. For me personally, I'm really proud of it because I am trying to give voice to voiceless in this area in work. Um, And I respect that that's not everyone's journey, but I am curious to see if as we further the destigmatization of addiction, if more people feel safe saying it, just like they say, I'm a vegetarian. You know, where if it comes up there, they feel fine to say it. It's not a totally fair comparison because I don't think there's a stigma against being a vegetarian. Not really. But but it will. I'll be curious to see that as these things and I hope that this type of framework takes hold and takes off to see how many more people feel safe coming out with that, this part of themselves and how it impacts retention of employees. So not only you think about people getting help sooner. And the productivity gains, if you want to turn this into an ROI discussion, <laughs> you know, there's significant ROI in people getting treatment going or stopping drinking if they're an alcoholic or a drug addict, right? I also can imagine that there's a lot of retention. I know I feel far more committed to Salesforce as a place of employment because of the work that I get to do within my work hours to further this cause where I am, there's no uh, retaliation against me for doing this, right? In fact, there's a ton of outpouring of support and encouragement for my leadership team. And that's pretty unique. I don't know that that's true everywhere, or if it is true in other spaces, how vocal they are with their employees that it's true. Um, So I'll be curious to see how many more people feel like they can say, oh yeah, no, I don't drink either. I stopped drinking 10 years ago. Uh, And in fact, I got sober while in this job you know, or while in a job 10 years ago here, and I've since promoted three times. Like those are the stories that I want more and more coming out to illustrate to others that it's possible that you can get sober, not lose your job, not burn everything down first. You can actually make a different choice for your life while in the space. Well, and to that point, I think that it's important to note also that there's there can be incredible return on investment for people who cut down on their drinking or eliminate drinking from their lives, even if they're not alcoholic. So, you know, I think that the question of, am I an alcoholic is 
such a scary question for people. But if the question is, am I drinking too much? Is it affecting my work life? It is affecting, is it affecting my health? Is it affecting my relationships? And is it okay for me to, even if I'm not an alcoholic and might not be clinically appropriate to go to treatment or go to AA or something like that, is it okay for me to, to eliminate drinking from my life and to say, I don't drink, I don't drink anymore because it just, it doesn't agree with me in the same way that dairy might not agree with me or something like that. And, you know, I think that what you're doing at Salesforce is creating a, you know, like we've already said, you've already said like kind of normalizing it and creating a a welcoming, inclusive space for people to say, I don't drink. And uh, or or I might, I'm curious about not drinking this term of sober curious, like, right. Yeah. 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 Because a lot of people didn't, I mean, all the data shows a lot of people did increase their drinking. That doesn't mean all these people are alcoholics and addicts, but like a lot of people increase their drinking as a way of coping with the stress of the pandemic. That's all documented now, right? And so I'd say a lot of those people are now going, mm, maybe I need to pull back and like take a break from this. But to your point, it doesn't mean that they're clinically diagnosable as substance use disorder, but it does mean that there's a tremendous benefit. There's the dog. <laughs> That's your mic. We're dog people. It's all good. <laughs> Well, I think this is a good place to like pause and and think and talk a little bit about the recovery friendly workplace toolkit that was developed by actually it was developed by an outside organization that does does not exist any longer, but we wanted them to live on because they took about a year to produce the content of the toolkit. And so the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence approached them and said, hey, could we purchase this toolkit and adapt it for our needs? And they were all on board because they too wanted their legacy to live on. And the founders, uh, one was a person in recovery and it was a brother and sister team. And so it was his sister supporting him uh, as a recovery ally. And so myself too, coming from when I was in recovery, I still worked in restaurants, which was about the least recovery conducive (laughs) environment. But I was also blessed to um, have the freedom to be very vocal about my recovery. And I think just from being there um, impacted that culture a bit because people saw there is an option to be a quote unquote normal person. And (laughs) not drink. A lot of people thought, well, if it's not, you know, if I'm not losing my job, if I'm not losing my kids, if I'm paying my rent, if I'm going to the grocery store, then I don't have a problem. And what they found was um, it it wasn't all or nothing. It wasn't black and white, that there was a lot of gray and it's up to them to determine kind of in that gray uh, if they want to stop their use or reduce their use. But so the, the toolkit is really a document that can be a startup guide for a, you know, an interested employee who says, gosh, I'm on this recovery pathway. How do I bring this into my workplace? Um, and then use it to communicate with leadership. So we walk through just a really broad introduction of kind of what are substance use disorders um, and a little bit of the science and, and, of course, the firm reminder that recovery is possible, that someone experiencing substance use challenges doesn't need to be fired or let go from their position, um, that that uh, employer can come alongside and support them and then retain them because we know it's really expensive to have to hire new staff all the time. Mm-hmm. Um And then the toolkit then walks through and gives people those numbers that you referred to uh, earlier, Marin, both on the impact of substance use disorders in the workplace. And then on the flip side, what, you know, that return on investment is huge. There was a recent study that demonstrated uh, close to $9,000 a year return on investment for an employee who was given access to recovery supports. Um, That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Um, and then it really walked the toolkit then really walks you through um, how to write a company-wide statement and how you can build this into your human resource structure. 
Um, it suggests policies and practices you can put in place that support people trying to either initiate recovery or people who are trying to maintain their recovery. And then different types of education that you can offer to your full staff. And again, that's about normalizing. We don't um, have to be scared to have these conversations. We might do education around diabetes or heart disease or other things. And, and we just throw recovery right into that mix because it's um, on that same level. It's a healthcare issue. And then we walk people through how to maybe combat some of that stigma. So you might have stigma at first. People might kind of pause and say, well, is it okay for us to talk about this? And we can um, dispel some myths about maybe traditional 12-step programs because you hear, well, there's anonymous in the name. People don't want to talk about their recovery. And then you can explain the difference between a 12-step program and then being vocal and advocating for uh, uh, open, re inclusive recovery support services. And then the toolkit ends with some um, state, national resources. And we even printed a, uh, or had our designers create a cool badge so you, there's something you can print and display in your workplace that says we are a recovery friendly workplace, meaning another way to make it super visible so that if somebody is struggling or maybe like you mentioned earlier, Marin, somebody might be 15 years in recovery and just it, it never came up. And so suddenly people feel welcomed to come out and see that as a strength and an asset that they bring to the workplace. That's awesome, Chris. Super, super necessary and needed in the space to walk, especially I think of like a, a smaller company. So I think about like our company has a massive benefits team, a massive, and I'm sure they could still learn from what this contains, but like a very well-funded, supported team that's pretty well-informed. At least my experience with the Salesforce team has been, I've been pretty impressed. And yet they're still coming saying, how can we do this better, right? But then those smaller companies who've reached out and said, I want to create this in my workspace, but like there's like 60 people of us here. <laughs> like, I don't know anyone else sober. How do I even start? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe bucket it in the category. I think you were saying around like diabetes, heart, like put it in the category of wellness or if you have programs supporting wellness, a lot of companies are leaning into that, right? So like mm -hmm. anything I'd say around the office of equality or around the wellness space, health and wellness, like just to make it part of the conversation. But getting the support from those groups that you're you're helping to educate and inform is really critical, especially mm -hmm. if you have a smaller size company. Well, and just a reminder that even, you know, in a smaller size company, we know the statistics are typically like one in four people are impacted by addiction. And so it's like, well, if you have five employees, <laughs> chances someone. are someone there is impacted. And these programs, what I love too, what you've done in Soberforce is really it expanded right away, right? So it wasn't just like inclusive to people who might have substance use challenges, but we saw wow, there's different varieties of addiction and there's family members and there's loved right. ones and siblings and um, that also benefit from these programs. And so it's not just the individual, the individual directly impacted, but then again, the, the people who are around them and kind of where they live, work and play. Thanks, Chris, for plugging our, our toolkit and for doing so, <laughs> so well. Marin, I, I'm going to jump backwards a little bit because I'm so curious. You know, we talk about, we talked a lot about, you know, the disclosure and not wanting to make anyone, not wanting to force any disclosure or make anyone feel uncomfortable with something they're not sharing. Was the start of Sober Force your first disclosure of your sobriety? And what was that like for you? Uh, it, it was the first time I'd done it in, well, no. So no, in the workplace, no. However, I never walk into a room and go like, hey, everyone, I'm an alcoholic in recovery. <laughs> I do that in other rooms, in 12-step rooms. I don't do that in the <laughs> workplace rooms. Um, so people, you know, in my network probably knew if we'd gone to a dinner and I didn't drink and they asked. But no, I think, and I think most people are in that category, right? Like it comes up if it comes up, but I don't like intentionally bring it up. There's never a space to, I don't know if that makes any sense. So yeah, yeah, some people knew, but never in a, uh, did I ever post something out to 65,000 people? Now, granted, not all 65,000 people saw it, but it was there if anyone wanted to see it, all 65,000 people could see it. 
Uh, no. And I felt like I was going to throw up when I posted it. I mean, I was so <laughs> anxious and it was an interesting, that actually legit was an interesting experience for me because I have been pretty, um, it, it's never felt like a secret to me. I've never made it a secret. It's, it's always something that I've been pretty open about in my life. I mean, I post about it on my personal networks, like on Facebook when I'm celebrating anniversary, cause I always want to be a hand extended if there are people mm-hmm. out there who are struggling to be reminded that like I am someone that they can talk to, um, which has happened over the years that people get sober and say, you don't really matter when I saw your post. So I post it with that intention of like, I don't, I hope that it reaches someone who needs to see this, right? Um, that recovery is possible. So in the workplace, no. And so not in that way. Um, and it was, yeah, no, it was, it was interesting to observe how anxious I felt as I was writing out why this mattered to me and a little bit about my story and a little bit about what it is now for me and why sober force. And we, I just kept coming back to the mantra of the co-founders, which was if we help one person, then this effort's worth it. If we help one person get help, then this is all worth it. Right. A hundred percent. We've helped more than one person at this point. Um, but within literally minutes of my posting that I got a phone call from a guy I'd worked with a few years prior who had remembered that he saw me not drink at a company at a client dinner and had wanted to call me a couple days prior because he had just stopped drinking that week, but didn't want to make assumptions of why I wasn't drinking at that dinner. And so he didn't reach out. And then he saw my post. And he called me and was like, I don't know what to do. What do I do? So I just shared my story and I shared resources of how I stay sober and places he could check out to see if it resonated for him. And then six months later, he had me come speak at his meeting that he was then chairing and celebrating his, you know, so it's like that right there was totally not by accident. The universe being like, yes, this matters because, you know, of course the ego pops up and it's like, oh my God, what have you done? You're <laughs> And every time I do a podcast, I get a little nervous, like, oh, God, it, yeah, because it's vulnerable. It's totally vulnerable. But mm-hmm. to me, it's necessary. For me, it's like I care more about the potential to help someone than about the, you know, my ego's fear of repercussion to whatever imagined fear I have of what's going to happen as a result of me being honest about my story. I love that. That's That's transcendent, right? That's... <laughs> That's humanity at its best. Um, so far, no repercussions. None that I'm so aware far. of. <laughs> <laughs> so far, none that I'm aware of. Um, I do think having boundaries, though, is important. So I think as you're disclosing at work, I am also very intentional to say I am not anyone's therapist, nor am I qualified to be. I am not anyone's sponsor in the workplace. I am not, you know... I am not here to replace any recovery program. Sober Force is not here to replace any recovery program. We are a community within the workplace. So when I get those emails that have been few and far between, but have happened of people in long-term recovery and 12-step programs, and they challenge if I'm honoring Tradition 7 of anonymity, I can kindly remind them that this is not a promotion of AA. This is not meant to be a 12-step program or replace a 12-step program, and that we are simply creating community in the workplace to destigmatize this conversation and to create space for people to feel safe at work as their full selves, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, it gets tricky. I mean, people have got opinions. <laughs> Shocking. People have got opinions and feelings, and I've had to kind of wrestle through some of my own as I do these podcasts. Um, and everyone has to, you know, again, like, you know, it's not for me to say that everyone should be out. No, like it's my own journey, but it is, it is interesting. I think having boundaries and being really clear on what your mission statement is when you do this matters because there will be people who are struggling, who reach out and I've had to set some boundaries with some people. And it's like, I'm always here for a conversation. And also I, you know, I would not be able to do my job um, nor would it be fair to that person because I'm not qualified. I started dabbling in the role of therapist during the work hours. Like that's not, you know, that's not good for anyone. So <laughs> I think to anyone who's interested in doing this kind of work, um, I'd say be clear on your boundaries and on your purpose before going into it. I think about all the potential there too, Marin. It always, um, I've thought about when we have a loved one who maybe is ex- has 
you know, gets a cancer diagnosis or something really, you know, intense and um, how at work we feel really comfortable wrapping around them, sending them cards, sending them flowers, maybe even checking in, depending on how close we are, like, hey, could I come over and mow your lawn or, um, you know, take your dog for a walk or, or things like that. And I really dream of that world where addiction is viewed through that lens. And so, again, maybe the, the person you're working with is the mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, and uncle, whatever, to someone experiencing addiction or the person themselves. And how awesome would that be in a workplace if, if those individuals experience that type of warm reception back to work? Um, and again, I'll plug the toolkit. There's some guidance in there about things we can do to welcome somebody back into the workplace. Again, honoring their level, their comfort level, yeah. um, but that we can reach out to people who are who are struggling themselves or a family member and, and send a card or a note or flowers and say, hey, I'm thinking of you. I know this is difficult um, and I'm here to help if, if you need something. And it's those non-clinical therapeutic they're still therapeutic but they're not clinical um things that I think really they're just so important and there's a reason why we do it for these other issues um, because there is not shame around having cancer (laughs) right so I mean a hundred percent I'm so glad you brought that up because The gift of sharing our stories vulnerably and authentically in the workplace is it gives people permission to both do do the same, but also for them to feel safe connecting with you on whatever is true for them. And it has been interesting to observe that while everyone knows about someone's dad who's going through cancer treatment or is in hospice care, right, or everyone knows about my mom who passed away from cancer, like, the shame around the the son who's in the hospital for suicidal ideation or the shame around the daughter who's drinking alcoholically and that that's not talked about and that's not shared widely. And it is now what's a, what's a beautiful gift of doing this work is that people feel safe coming to me and telling me what's going on with them. These people that I work with, right. Who then feel safe sharing that with me, which is a gift to me that they trust me to share that. And also breaks my heart that the shame of it is what keeps people in the dark with it, struggling with it on their own versus feeling safe to just say it and realize how many other people have the same stories in their families too. Yeah. And what we know about shame is that it is more often than not a motivator, not a motivator for positive change. It only perpetuates challenge and issues. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah sharing our stories to normalize it, right? It's like that. I don't know how else to normalize it than to just share our stories and have enough people share their stories to go, okay, maybe I'm not broken. Like maybe this is just part of the human condition. And like, this is my thing that I struggle with. That power of, oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, you all have spoken so well to the power of normalizing it and that needing to be the push. And, and for me, I, I want to push it even further to celebrate it. I think it should be celebrated. So when, you know, you're at that restaurant with your friend and they, and you order a Shirley temple, they're like, hell yeah, you get that mocktail. <laughs> you do what's best for you. Yeah. The same way we go and cheer on all the marathon runners, right? Yeah. Now talking about running the race. And yet then we celebrate it with a bigger time. Where you're highly dehydrated. Here, drink that. And it's nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, do that. And after you Perfect. ran how far? Oh gosh. <laughs> I know. I have to be careful not to go into judgment because I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Marin, I just have one more question. And that is um, what do you guys what are the the monthly meetings that you guys have at Sober Force like? Is it it's people sharing their stories? Is it always people who are themselves in recovery? Do family members share? What what happens there? Yeah, thanks for asking. So it's for our members. So it's extended out to everyone who's like an official member of Sober Force. Um, our attendance is roughly around 50 people every month, which is great. Considering how many virtual meetings are happening and how burned out people are on virtual meetings, I'm thrilled with 50 people showing up. 
Uh, and we we have an awesome co. So we have a leadership team that now supports this effort. And we have co-chairs because this is definitely not work that, you know, I or anyone else could do on their own. So we have co-chairs of our meetings that facilitate all of this, plan it, host it. Uh, and on the meeting, we feature speakers for generally like the first 20 minutes who share their story. And we are really intentional. The team is really intentional about picking people with different stories. So there's been someone who's been a sister of a brother who's really struggled to stay sober and um, her journey with that. There are people who are in recovery themselves from substance use disorder. There are people who have chosen not to drink because they're more effective in life and feel healthier and clearer not drinking, but they're not alcoholic, diagnosable alcoholic. They just stop drinking and it's working for them. And then we also have, and then it's like uh, Q&A. So just like open discussion. We talk about um, our quarterly meetings, which are external speakers, who's coming up, what's coming up. Hopefully at some point we'll be back in person and can start talking about local events based on cities. Right now, people are just grabbing coffee, which is awesome to see. Like, hey, I'm in near the San Francisco office. Anyone around, can you grab coffee? Which is cool to see people are starting to gather now. And we have a way to join anonymously because we're also aware. So um, so it's while it's uh, extended out to all the members, you can join these calls as a Salesforce employee without being like a visible member. That makes sense. So there's a way to get into these calls, these monthly calls. And we want to do that for people who don't yet feel safe putting their name out there, but want to hear the content. And so we actually do it through our EMEA Zoom link, which is really interesting. So for the technical people, like uh, if you do it through a mayor, there is a way to trace the data back. But if you do it through EMEA, which is Europe, Middle East, Asia, there is um, because of I'm going way too in the details, but because of pr privacy protection laws, there's a way to facilitate a truly anonymous dial in, which so we're clear with our members that they know that and we do have people who join anonymously, which is awesome. Um, and then, as I mentioned, quarterly, we have a call with an external speaker to someone who's works in this space or. Um, yeah, generally people who work in the space in different realms of the recovery community. That's great. I love it. I have a question for any or all of you. What advice would you give to someone who, you know, wherever they're at in their recovery journey, how how to best navigate that and their career in a workplace that's not necessarily recovery friendly? I mean, I would say just always be true to you. So, you know, when I was early in recovery, I left nonprofit healthcare and was in commercial real estate in New York. And that was a very heavy drinking culture for sure. Luckily, I had a, a cousin who also worked there who was sober. So that helped me because I knew like, well, he's doing it. He's good, right? But for me, it meant like I just opted out of the social happy hours. And like there was fear of like, am I going to miss out? Am I going to miss out on connection, relationships? But nothing was worth jeopardizing my sobriety. And so I'd say just listening to what's true for you. And trusting that if you're showing up and doing your job, the other stuff is probably not actually required. I think we can tell ourselves stories that the happy hour is required, and it's not actually true. The company would make way rather you stay healthy and in a, a productive employee than go to the dinner, right? And so I'd say just be honest with yourself of what's safe and what's not safe. And that for me has always been my guiding principle. Like my sobriety comes before everything. And so I just make decisions based on that. Yeah, I think it's true that there it's easy to tell ourselves stories around, you know, like, oh, people are going to notice if I'm not drinking or I have to drink in order to, you know, I need to wine and dine these clients. But it's actually it's um, like you said, Marn, it's not a requirement of the job. And I it took me time to get comfortable just kind of nonchalantly saying no thank you when someone offered me a drink and it's no big deal. It's just, you know, like you don't even, you know, give any energy to that question. And most, I would say 99.8% of the time people don't question it. They just move on. Um, there might be an occasional like, Hey, why aren't you drinking? And, you know, I, I'm now at a point where I can just, casually and confidently say, oh, I don't drink and just move on, <laughs> you know, and it's very empowering. It's, you know, it's, um, 
Yeah, it's just very empowering to be in that place. But I totally get, you know, people who are, you know, maybe in early stages of recovery or sobriety, feeling nervous about um, saying no to a cocktail at a holiday, a company holiday party or a happy hour or something like that. But well, I think there's it. opportunities to open those doors. I've heard a lot of places doing kind of like, like you mentioned this earlier, Maren, like family friendly events. So maybe there's a way to even promote like, well, do we have to do this at a a brewery? (laughs) Can we go as a team, like play mini golf and have a picnic in the park? And are there other ways to um, open up, create spaces that are non-drinking spaces? If you don't want to disclose you're in recovery and it's maybe not a recovery friendly environment where we can start to create at least, um, events that aren't aren't solely focused around drinking. And what I find too is how much fun people have. I mean, you're you're kind of gifting this community that thinks also, even if they're a a normal drinker and have no issues, um, sometimes I think even those folks are craving non-drinking events. And and you inspire people that wow, it was kind of fun to go do this thing where it wasn't all centered around drinking or alcohol that we we can have fun together as a team doing a lot of other things out there in the world. I think that's great and all good suggestions. Thank you all for being here. Is there anything else you want to bring up to our listeners about recovery, workplace? I would say Again, plug the toolkit. Go check out the toolkit. It is a really good guide. It's a place to start. Um, it's a way to maybe just test those waters and ring through, read through some material that could help if this is something you're interested in doing. And then you can always visit the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence and check out the other supports that we have for integrating peers into different settings and helping build the peer recovery workforce. And if those are terms that are totally unfamiliar to you, I would say visit our website and we'll tell you more. Yes, it is all there. Yeah. And I would just add if anyone wants to connect on LinkedIn, um, any people out there who want to try to stand something like this up at their company, definitely feel free to ping me. Uh, Marin Nelson, M-A-R-I-N. Find me there and we'll, we'll chat. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org, or wherever else you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. We'll talk with you next time.